Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HR Works Podcast, brought to you by HR Daily Advisor. I'm your guest host, Josh Zygmunt, Content Director for Simplify Media. The HR Works Podcast provides clear, relevant, and actionable information on topics that matter to you, the HR professional. When you're armed with the best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional service to your organization, HR just works. Today, we're joined by Brad Fetterman, CEO of Performance Point LLC. Brad is an author, speaker, and consultant with over 25 years of corporate experience in various aspects of human resources and people operations, including performance management and employee engagement, employee compensation, executive recruiting, change management, and instructional design. Brad works with clients to create healthy organizations through employee and customer engagement and leadership. In addition, Brad just released a new book, Cultivating Culture, 101 Ways to Foster Engagement in 15 Minutes or Less, that was released on March 1st. Brad, welcome to the HR Works Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, we're excited to have you. So Brad, as I mentioned, you just released a book on March 1st, all about corporate culture. So we definitely want to dig into that and learn more about employee engagement, especially in the changing workforce that we're seeing in this modern era. But before we do that, let's get started by having you walk us through your career path and sharing what led you to a career in human resources and people operations. Sure. I started off with Accenture. Uh, it's called Accenture now. Back then, it was this, uh, Anderson Consulting years ago before they split. You know, that's where I learned the ropes, cut my teeth. And from there, I went internally. I started working for a company called Norel Services and Humana Inc. We did some great work before I was recruited back out in the consulting world. Um, and then eventually, I decided to start Performance Point, my own company. I have incredible teams that I, a team that I work with and Really, our focus is getting organizations to realize that they're out of balance. They focus solely on a set of P's. Uh, I use the term P's because it stands for things like profit, proclamations, problems, process. You know, and we think that they need to put more emphasis on things like purpose, people, participation, and passion. So our job is to shift companies to go in the right direction. In essence, what we want them to do is we want them to discover and live what's possible, they're possible. You know, that's ultimately what our role is. And uh, we do that through focusing on culture and branding, strengthening leadership, employee experiences, creating awesome customer experiences. And what drove me to this is, I, you know, I don't know, we all get there different ways. For me, when I was 13 years old, around 13 years old, I just started getting connected to things like psychology, um, teams, leadership, how all those things worked. I was drawn to it and I started studying it ever since and getting involved in activities and things that really drove that. And so when I went to college, I said, how do I do this for a living? Because I love this stuff. And essentially, undergraduate and graduate work, I studied those things. Undergraduate was organizational communication with a minor in business. Graduate work was psychology, HR, both great institutions. I loved my education. And that's what brought me down this road. Uh, it's so great. And thank you for sharing that, Brad. And prior to jumping on this call, you and I were just catching up and talking about youth sports a bit. And it's really interesting to see that having that experience growing up, you may not have known it at the time that that was going to lead you to this career path, but really seeing what gets you invigorated and being a part of team building that again, led you down this great path of being a consultant and really leading teams through how to build effective and top performing teams. Absolutely. It is interesting. You know, we all focus on things that we like and are drawn to. And you can have a similar experience and it can teach different people different things. So for me, it just brought me down that path. That's great. So Brad, tell us a bit more then about what your current role is with Performance Point LLC. You know, I, I really focus on 
Right now, a lot more about strategy, where we're going, marketing, product development, and service development. But I am, uh, I am really work with a wonderful team of people that are talented, data scientists, structural designers, graphic designers, you know, compensation specialists. We just have a really well-rounded team. And our focus is truly about making our clients better. I've been known to not work with certain clients, to um, let certain clients go because we want to make a difference and we really want to have an impact. And so our goal is to work with clients that want to develop their talent, want to create incredible cultures, and they want to use that talent and culture and leadership to drive great customer experiences. That all sounds great. All right. So Brad, you mentioned really focusing on culture and building culture and helping teams find their path and establish their corporate culture. So help me understand, we all know and talk about corporate culture, throw the term around, but how do you define corporate culture and what do you consider as really the defining factors in building a corporate culture? Sure. I think it's made more complex than it needs to be. I look at it in a couple different ways. First, I think it's simply a shared passion and way of doing things that make up our norms, our values, that got our behavior, our decision-making, our prioritization, and our efforts, right? So we have a shared way of doing things and a shared passion around doing things a certain way. But most importantly, I think it's reflected in the behaviors that we're willing to tolerate by whom, when, and under what circumstances. You know, in essence, our culture is defined ultimately by how we live, not what we espouse. And I think the times that matter are the times when we're tested. You know, I, I, I use examples like this. If you're allowing someone who's your best revenue generator in your company, your best salesperson in your company, to behave differently than everyone else, then how you let them behave is what your culture becomes. If you focus on behaving well most of the time, but you struggle when you're challenged, when there's a problem, and that's when you yell at somebody or you berate somebody or you're sarcastic and rude, that's what your culture becomes. Your culture is dictated not by your best moments, but it's by your worst moments that you continue to allow and you tolerate. Right. I mean, you're really setting your lowest common denominator for the group. And that really is sticking out to me that you're establishing what you can tolerate. And that sets the tone for the corporate culture. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not so much that people can't make mistakes. People do. But when you make mistakes, do you own up to it? Do you try and change it? Do you adjust? I think that's the bigger issue, right? Right. So with that, are there steps that HR teams can implement into their team dynamics, especially during times of turbulence, challenging times, to really help maintain a healthy corporate culture? Yeah, I think, first of all, when you're going through challenging times and turbulent times, I think it's when you double down on things like your culture. Unfortunately, the opposite is usually true. Companies cut back on those things and they get stuck in the grind, right? And that becomes part of the problem. But I I think the first thing you need to do is you um, you need to be clear about what your culture looks like. What is your definition of your culture? You can't create anchors for your culture if you haven't defined what your culture is. That's the first part. So for instance, if respecting each other is part of your culture definition, then that becomes an anchor, right? And so how do we reinforce that? And so those anchors keep your corporate culture steady as long as you revisit them and you use them. I always, I I view culture as a living, breathing entity. And Any living, breathing entity needs to take care of itself or be taken care of. And if you don't, it goes downhill. And so culture needs to be consistently cared for, revisited, and woven into the fabric of the way you work. We tend to have cultural focus that is an event focus. Let's come up with a cultural statement. Let's come up with values. Let's put it on the wall. Give everybody placards. 
and hopefully it sticks. That's not building culture. That's a set it and forget it mentality. Right. So, you know, the reality is we need to find ways to revisit it. So, you know, the first step I would tell you is the book I wrote was for that purpose. It's a playbook. It really is 101 ways to feed and care for your culture. And it gives you every single thing you need to do that. And there's 101, 101 what I call culture workouts that last between five and 15 minutes each. It's easy, it's practical to follow, and anybody can put those into work. And they help you with issues like, how do we help lead each other intentionally? Anybody can take on that role. How do we communicate with purpose um, and, and create more purpose and meaning in our lives? How do we develop each other? Uh, how do we generate a team and an environment that's inclusive where we all feel comfortable, safe, and valued and respected consistently? How do we develop a team collaboration and harmony? How do we uncover solutions and focus on being solution-oriented rather than being blame-oriented? How do we prioritize safety so that everyone comes to work and leaves work in, in the same way you know they came, that they're in one piece? And then really something that we have to all focus on is how do we serve our customer best, right? So we put the book together to say, if you don't have really strong anchors, then here are some core anchors that work in any culture to create trust, transparency, and success. And we created a playbook for you so that you could do it no matter what. That's great. And those are all questions that you can and probably should be asking yourself throughout the process, right? As you mentioned, it's not a set it or forget it process building corporate culture. It's not something you can just say, here's what we're deciding to do. Here's what our culture will be. Here's what our mission statement is. And then leave that alone and, and let it run itself. No, it needs to be nurtured. It needs to be kept up with. And I think those are types of questions that you can check back in as team leaders and reevaluate. And that's a great way to assess, hey, how are we doing? And really get a gauge for where your culture is and maybe what needs to be paid attention to. Absolutely. That's so great. So with that, are there any red flags that HR teams should be looking for to say, hey, something's wrong with our corporate culture here? Well, the first thing I would tell people is always assume there's an issue. You know, I find that when companies believe they've got it down, that's when they start to fall. For instance, building trust with your employees, if you're a manager, is an everyday effort. And then when managers think they've got trust with their employees, that's when they start to lose the trust. So the very first thing is, if you think you've got a great culture and you've got it down, then start worrying because that's when you're going to fall behind. But I think there are a lot of signals. You know, you can look at your turnover rates. You can look at your inability to attract candidates. You can look at low engagement scores. You can look at negative glass door reviews. You can look at lower productivity, an increase in absenteeism, a loss of, of your safety record and more. And, and one of the biggest things I think you can look at is your net promoter score, your customer service scores. Are they going up? Are they going down? Are they steady? I mean, there's so many things you can look at that will actually tell you a little bit about your culture. You know, people say, well, how are customer service scores related to your culture? Well, your customer service game is an inside out job. You aren't providing great customer service if what's happening inside isn't working and working well. So it is a fantastic measure of how well your culture is working and how well you've built a culture that serves your customer. And that actually jumps to one of the questions I had lined up here about metrics and how do you really measure that corporate culture? And can you put metrics against efforts you're making to see are they working and how are we doing? It sounds like they're almost indirect metrics there to look at. So it could be Glassdoor, maybe it's Google reviews, customer reviews, customer feedback, retention rates. So it seems to be a, a series of metrics you can look at. Are there any other metrics that can be used and implemented to say, how are we doing? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think uh, 
we do engagement surveys and we use all sorts of metrics. You know, interestingly enough, I think companies tend to get caught up in things that are distractions. So I have companies that want benchmarks and norms, right? So, you know, the reality is you need to create your own internal benchmarks. Here's where we are. Here's where we want to be. You know, I, I look at it and I say, look, if you have norms or benchmarks, for instance, you're in fast food or food service and McDonald's happens to be one of your largest customers in that data set, right? They're going to tilt that data set, the norms in their direction. Right? Now, if you're a Starbucks, are you really competing with McDonald's? Well, no, but you might get distracted off your business if you're focused too much on those external benchmarks. So we have a tendency to say you should set internal benchmarks and those internal benchmarks should be based on some kind of an analysis. So we provide key drivers, which is really an impact analysis based on correlations. We tell people here are the one, two or three things that if you did, you know, as a company within this department or division, they would have the biggest impact on your engagement levels. And, and so we really try and make it where the rubber meets the road. That's the first thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say is you can look at other types of measurements. For instance, you can look at doing a cultural analysis or audit and an assessment. And we sometimes add those into engagement surveys, but sometimes we do them separately. And you can not only look at whether your culture is working or not, whether you're living up to your values or not, but you can look at if there are any toxic culture behaviors, which ones seem to be creeping up. I mean, you've got a variety of them that, that occur. So there are a lot of different ways you could do it. And we even have companies that are doing pulse surveys where we're asking just one question each month or one question a quarter. And instead of doing these major surveys, and it allows companies to be able to find things out right away in a very focused manner, respond to them quickly and not get overwhelmed with too much data and then move forward to the next. Um, I would tell you, though, the two trends that I think I see are they call them the employee life cycle, which is actually taking all these different measurements, exit interviews, onboarding assessments, engagement surveys or pulse surveys, all these different things. And you're looking at them in conjunction with each other to get a full picture. That's a powerful direction that a lot of clients, many of our clients are starting to go to. And I would tell you this, the other thing you're finding is when third parties do the surveying, the results are different than when a company does the surveying. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you this, Josh, if you were an employee at a company, you weren't that high up and you were not happy with certain things and you got a survey that you knew was coming from your organization and was going directly to HR and they could see what you said, would you tell the truth? Right. It's a no brainer. Of course, you'd be a little more measured with your response. Exactly. So the biggest advice I'd give people is make sure that you're collecting good data in the first place, because if you're not, you're not going to solve your problems. That means in many cases, use a third party. I don't care who you use. You don't have to use us, but get good data. That's, I think, the first thing too many organizations are working off of incomplete or inaccurate data. You start with the wrong story, you're going to end with the wrong ending. Right. That's pretty simple, right? You've got to have something true and valuable that's going in to get anything out. So when you do encounter let's say an issue and you, you realize, hey, things are kind of going sideways. Are there any quick fixes that teams can implement? Obviously, there's longer term fixes that, that will be needed, but what's the quick valve shut off to maybe stop the bleeding or right the ship or whatever analogy you want to use? But I'm going to use another one. What's the magic bullet that you can look to to get a quick fix? Well, I, I'm going to start with saying there's never a magic or silver bullet, even though everybody wants one. But I will say this, if there is one, it's relationships, relationships, relationships everybody's relying on technology. 
Unfortunately, instead of you're using technology to build stronger relationships, they're using it as a vehicle to be more efficient and more cost effective. So the first thing I would tell you is data can point you in a direction. Data can give you some insights. But what people want is they want to have a voice. They want to feel heard. They want to have connections. You know, people weren't they weren't sure that after COVID would people go back to the movie theater and people are starting to go back to movie theaters. Why? Because people like that communal experience. Right. And I think um, I think the reality is you had people fight to go to church. You had people who have I mean, I can't you can't get into restaurants these days. Right. Right. People want experiences. Data doesn't give you that. And so I think the very first thing you need to do is you need to find ways to create conversations. You need to have, you have to have two-way conversations where people are allowed to communicate, where they feel safe to communicate. And you'll learn so much when you do that. Now, people say, well, we don't have time for more conversations. We don't have time for all this. I would argue that that is a function of, of a couple things. One is there are too many meetings. So the very first thing I would tell you is reduce the number of meetings. The one meeting I will tell everybody to get rid of is get rid of the darn update meeting. I'm tired of update meetings. They last way too long, hour, two hours. I've seen them last three hours and they're passive. So everybody sits there. You know, if you're Zoom, people have the cameras off and they're just waiting for someone to finish and then it's their turn. Right. And you could email that and people could look at the bullet list and they'd have the same information. Right. So. If you want to have a meeting, have two kinds of meetings. One is a work session, which doesn't have to have the entire team. It has the people that need to be there, the people that need to be part of that discussion or part of that decision making, right, or need to be consulted. That's who's in that meeting. And it's an active meeting. So I want to be there. Right. And I belong. there. The second meeting I would say is to focus on giving people a sense of the direction of where we're going and what we need to get done. Build culture, have a call to action, recognition. That's your other meeting. And that can last 10, 15, maximum 20 minutes. Fast, intense, fun, exciting, if you do it right, and powerful, right? And and that kind of building of norms and understanding together, shared sense of who we are and where we're going and how to get there, you just can't beat that. It's almost like, but you and I talked about sports before this. What do football teams do before every play on the field? Right, you get in the huddle. Right. That's what you're looking for, whether it's once a day, once a week or once a month. We need that moment. We need it charged up and ready for that next set of plays. That's what we need to do. And that's why those kinds of meetings are so important. So I would tell you it's about relationships. It's about transparency. It's about open communication that builds trust and gets people excited about where we're going. I love that. So, Brad, actually what you gave us instead of the magic bullet or the the quick fix it's the first fix. It's the ground floor of when you want to rebuild and right the issue, start with those relationships, as you mentioned, really start there and then build up. Then you get your building blocks to build back toward a more successful corporate culture. Absolutely. And every team lead, supervisor, or manager needs to be doing it. We work with companies on this. We'll, we'll actually set up calendar systems and have the uh, what we call the culture workouts or the culture building activities set and ready. We've done it with hotel companies. You know, you have a thousand hotels doing the same culture building activity plus corporate at the same time. And what's amazing is the communication within the organization is smoother because everybody sees the world the same way. But what's even more interesting is the experience that customers have, guests have going to those hotels or to the bank or whatever, whatever kind of company it is. Right. 
is the same. It's consistent because everybody is seeing the world from the same vantage point. It's powerful in so many ways. So you can do it individually as a team, but if you can do it collectively, oh my gosh. I've seen, for instance, within one month, I saw a 17% increase in the ability to solve customer problems. Wow. Bounce back from customer problems with one organization in one month, we saw that just by engaging in an activity like this. One step in the right direction can really lead and just have you take off. Yeah. That's fantastic. Great advice there, Brad. So you also mentioned those ineffective meetings, right? The long update meetings that, that aren't necessary. And with that comes the challenge of employee engagement, just losing the engagement. You've got everybody, especially in the new virtual world where it's so easy to turn your camera off, be distracted, wait for your moment to come in, give your two minutes of updates, and then check back out. So how has employee engagement changed over the last two years since March 2020 when so much of us moved to a remote or distributed culture? Huge. Absolutely huge. You know, it's been changing for a while, even before then. But that just was a that was like pushing the fast forward button. Um, you know, people used to say things like people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And, and they still say it sometimes. And that's partially true. But there are so many other statements like, People, people leave jobs, they don't leave careers, people leave companies, not brands. All those are true to a point. The reality is that every year, every organization has an individual set of circumstances. And in that particular company, what matters most will be specific to that organization. And so you really do need to understand what's happening at your company. But we are affected by macro forces, and that's what you're talking about. So some of the trends that we're seeing is that with a dispersed workforce, your teammates, your colleagues have become more important factors in your engagement. It used to be the manager, but you know we're distributed, we're remote, and we have a lot more interaction with teammates in many cases than we do with our manager. So I think there's a huge focus on that. Second thing I think is that senior leaders are sometimes key. When, when you have a company or a, a large economic issue, it started noticing this, we started noticing this in 2008, when the market took a tumble by 50% in 2008 and everybody started laying off, it was interesting when you did engagement surveys, managers started to get a pass. And the reason for that was everyone knew their manager didn't control their fate. Everyone knew all the crap that was happening in these companies had nothing to do with their personal supervisor or manager. It had to do with something bigger than them. And the only people they thought that potentially had an impact on that, could influence it, could, could steer this ship in the right direction and make sure that things were going to be okay, was the senior leadership. And so during difficult moments, bad economies, managers tend to get a pass and senior leaders tend to get held more responsible. That's a big one. But in the last two years, I think the big things you're seeing is a shift towards meaningful work. There's been a change in our values and our value system and people want to do things that that they see make a difference, that have value, that I'm impacting the community, that I'm passionate about what I do. So I think organizations need to start thinking about how to address that better. Another one is um, job security. Change is happening so fast and people are getting, they're, they're struggling with coping, right? With changes of jobs, ups and downs, pivoting to remote, having to come back to the office, all these things. They want job security and they want some consistency. They want to hang their hat on something. And that's why I've said that culture is now becoming, if done right, is becoming the coping mechanism for an ever-changing world, right? And I, and I think you, you can use your culture to provide some of that stability. 
Flexibility is, a, is another one. People have got a taste for it. They've, they've been able to be home when the people show up to fix their washing machine, right? They've been able to drive their kid to school and then come back to the home office um, because it's close to their home. They want a level of flexibility. Companies are struggling with that and they're trying to figure that out and they haven't necessarily always gotten it right yet, but, but we need to figure that one out. And then development. You know, if you graduate from school today, Chances are you're going to work for 50 years. And they say in a little while, that's going to, that's going to actually creep up to 60 years. What does it tell you? It tells you, tells you that for a long time, a marathon, basically, I have to bring in personal income and every year I have to bring in more personal income so I can retire. So here's the deal. These people who are graduating today and other people who are working today have seen their friends, their family, their uncles, their aunts, their parents lose jobs, have been told that they've been fantastic. They've got a great skill set and then all of a sudden they're on the uh, they're on the curb looking for a job being told you know what your skill set's kind of stale and um i can hire someone for less getting out of school now with a better skill set and so people have they've gotten wise i'm not staying at the same place forever right so what what do i have to be loyal to i have to be loyal to my growth and what they're starting to say is if you're willing to make me faster better and stronger today than i was yesterday then i'll stay but if I'm not, I'm going somewhere else. So development is key. We've got to start committing to developing our people, upskilling our people, or we will lose. Upskilling is, is such a hot topic right now from both sides. It benefits the employee who's trying to continue to grow and keep up and remain valuable, right? And remain relevant. But then on the employer side, you're also trying to fill that skills gap. It's a heck of a lot easier to upskill your existing employees then to go back out in the market and try to compete with that gap. And, and we're seeing that with the great resignation where that is a great opportunity for employers to say, Hey, we're going to create these upskilling opportunities for our teams so that they feel valued. They feel like we're invested in their career growth, but also you're retaining top talent. You're not losing them to that next opportunity. That's something teams and groups are getting wise to, to say, Hey, this is something that we need to put to the front of our priority list. Yeah, I agree. I think you're right. And those that, that figure that out, will do so much better than those that don't. And there are too many companies right now that are stuck in the grind and they're not thinking about it. The haves and have nots are going to become greater. Yeah. That gas is going to become bigger. And, and it's all based on what you choose to do and what you choose to value as an organization going forward. Yeah, so. uh, I completely agree. The, the flexibility piece you mentioned as well is I think something that's been so interesting to watch. You're right, we all learned over the last two years what was possible, what, what was capable in terms of getting work done, but then also having that balance, being able to be able to manage life outside of work that so many of us kind of thought about, but didn't get to actually experience. Now you experience it to, and we keep using analogies on this uh, conversation, but to put the toothpaste back in the tube in some cases is impossible. And so there's going to be that pivot now going forward with expectations with, I think, a lot of the workforce. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the third piece that you mentioned that I thought really stood out was the stability aspect with so much changing and unexpected, even for teams that are trying to return back to whatever the normal will be, whether it's hybrid or back in the office full time, there's still so much that's shifting that I think employees and employers alike want something that's stable that they can start planning for. You're right. And one of the challenges we have with that is we as organizations and employees are going to have to get used to the fact that Stability is not really going to be here. I mean, they, they, the fact is change is speeding up. It's, it's becoming more exponentially. It's exponentially growing because of technology. 
Um, if you think about it, what they've said is in the next 10 years, expect 100 years worth of change. So it's it's like going to sleep in 1900 and waking up in 2000. And it's disorienting if that happened. Well, the next 10 years, that's what's going to happen to people. And so we really actually have to become resilient and, and agile and, and become change agents for ourselves and our organizations. And so part of it is about creating some sense of stability. I think your culture can fit that. But beyond that, you've got to create a skill set where people can adapt. And we've got to get better at that. 100% agree. So looking at employee engagement, and again, there's plenty of factors that play into what's affecting employee engagement. But if you had to pick one big threat, what would you see as the biggest threat to employee engagement that HR leaders need to be aware of as they're bringing teams back into the workplace, as they're looking at their next step forward? You're right. There are a lot. Um, I'm going to suggest... I'm going to try and do one, but I may end up doing two. I apologize. You can go to two or three. That's fine. <laughs> All right. So the first one I think is you're not running organizations anymore. You're running trauma centers. If you look at the burnout numbers, you look at the stress level numbers, um, you look at the use of prescription drugs for anxiety, you look at prescription drugs for sleeping at night, you look at the behavior you're seeing on planes with people and the way they're behaving. These are all signs that we are at our wits end as a society and in, in the workplace. People have been through a lot, not just COVID and losing um, people, et cetera, but the incivility that's happened in our society, the, the just the pivoting and the change, the, the loss of jobs, the changing industries without planning for that. All these things have happened. It's almost like post-traumatic stress for a lot of folks. And they don't even realize it. I was talking to an employer the other day and they had a, a woman who worked for them and they had set a date to come back and she had called her manager and she had said, I'm ready and was excited to come back. And she got in the car the day she was supposed to come back. She turned the ignition, started driving down the street and she started bawling uncontrollably and couldn't understand why people aren't even in touch with the damage that they've been through. Right. And so I think leaders need to be prepared for the fact that they're going to have unexplained and unpredictable behavior from even some of their best employees. And they have to be aware of the mental health and the fact that people have been through the trauma and they're going to have to help their people through that and find resources. That's the first thing that I think is a very big threat to employee engagement. The second one is the deterioration that continues between the employer and employee relationship. You saw it when when the labor shortage happened and when people started resigning and moving between jobs because they finally said, we're tired of falling behind, we're tired of getting paid less than inflation, and now's my chance. I'm sticking it to you, right? The response from a lot of organizations was twofold. One was, unfortunately, I'm going to invest in outrageously in technology because I'm going to remove labor from my workforce. Right. So I'm going to deal with less employees. It may take me five years to get there, but I'm going to get rid of a bunch of employees and I'm going to replace them with AI, robots, all kinds of things. You saw that happening huge. The investments made after COVID and with the labor shortage and the great resignation, you saw companies drive that. You also saw companies that sort of said, hey, you're going to get your butt back in the office on this date, you know, and that's it, right? I'm not listening to you. I'm not talking to you. You, you saw it in the headlines, Right. Um, you saw companies say, how can we take advantage of um, the gas prices? This was one company that made the headlines by getting people at a lower wage because they're desperate, right? I mean, all kinds of things happen in response to what's happening. So you have an employer-employee relationship that is becoming more and more tenuous. 
And it's been going on for about 30, 40 years, and it continues to go down that path. And if we don't begin to repair that relationship and not look for engagement as just a number or as a way to plug an award or whatever the case may be, but we truly want to connect with our people and we want a relationship where we both benefit. If we don't change that, um, that's the ultimate threat to engagement and to the success of our organizations and I would say our society at large. It'll be really interesting to see what works. I think that's where I'm really interested in seeing over the next six months to a year as teams try a new approach, breaking down what were their cultural norms within a team or or the expectations of saying, hey, we're going to be a fully remote team now, or we're no longer adhering to a nine to six timeframe. Obviously, we'll find like the, the right balance, but I think teams are going to now look at what's best for us. That's part of our corporate culture, and that's what we are going forward, and we'll attract the talent who is aligned with that. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, I think people are making decisions without really thinking through things and solid information. So McKinsey came out with a study that said that 28 to 33 percent of tasks work can be done remotely well, right? Right. Which tells you we can't be fully remote. On the flip side, um, you also have a study that says, hey, two to three days in the office is a sweet spot for most people, right? That, that So you're starting to see data come in and tell us some things. People are addicted to working from home, but the people that work from home are more burnt out, more stressed, use more alcohol and drugs than people that work in the office. So we're addicted to something that hasn't necessarily been good for us, right? And and so we have to kind of be honest about some of these things. Some people are suited for remote work. Some people aren't suited for remote work. Extroverts need uh, a, a lot more interaction than introverts. Introverts may be more comfortable with working from home and by themselves, but if they're stuck on an island and not collaborating because they remove themselves too much, we have a problem with our productivity over time. And people are doing these weird things like we're going to split everybody up. You need to come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You need to come in Monday, Wednesday. And so what are we doing? We're coming into work and we're sitting at our desk doing what? On Zoom meetings because the other people we work with are working from home. So if we're going to do hybrid Wouldn't it make sense to bring people in in intact teams so they can collaborate and work together? Wouldn't it make sense to to think through those things in a a better way? And then you have to think about this. What about career development? You know, there's this concept of out of sight, out of mind. So, Josh, if you decide to come into work and I don't, after a year or so, I'm going to guarantee you, you're going to have opportunities that I don't. Sure. So career development is going to drive some people back into the office because that's just the way it works. It may not be right, but it's what happens. And so I think we've got a lot to figure out over the next few years about how to do this and how to do it well. And I'm concerned that people aren't thinking through it. The biggest example I'd give you is that date to come back. I have told my clients, and we've, we've been proponents of this, don't give a date to come back. You want to create a situation where your people are saying, when can we come back? How often should, should we come back? And they said, how do we make them ask that question? I said, well, here's what I would do. I would create opportunities for us to get together and do things. To work on a a collaborative project where we're coming together to brainstorm and work on it is imperative, right? And then, um, or to have a celebration of something. And then you create an experience about that. So when I come into the office and I see Josh and we're working together and we have this cool experience, I'm thinking to myself, no, we need to do this more often, right? Right. It's been too long. And then all of a sudden you have them pulling you into it, right? Rather than you 
pushing your employees into it. If you create a, a productive environment, a positive environment that gives people reason to come back and a, a desire to come back, then your organization wins. And that's what organizations need to be doing is they need to show people that there are moments when working together live and in person makes a difference. And there's something that you can't replace with interaction that's live and in person. And if you do that, you do it well, then they're going to voluntarily find ways and times to come in. Now, they're still going to ask for flexibility. And as an organization, we need to be prepared for that. But they're going to want to work together live in person and collaborate. There's your engagement. Yeah. When you when you've got everyone invested in wanting to come back, you're automatically going to be more engaged when you're coming into something that you're excited to be a part of. We're human beings. We got to start thinking about humane environments. We got to think about building connections. We think about tasks, profit, um, deadlines. We're not machines. We're people. And you have to have that side of it in your thinking. That's so well said. Now, Brad, you've already touched on this a bit just in the conversation, but if you had to get your crystal ball out to look at what the employee engagement experience looks like in the future with this transition to flexible work environments, what do you see as the future of employee engagement? I really think the, the future of employee engagement is centered around um, some things that we've talked about. It's centered around careers and it's centered around culture. You've got to do two things. One is you've got to tell people what you stand for and you've got to live up to it. You know, did you know toxic work culture is the number one predictor of why people are leaving right now? That's the number one predictor. Yeah. We have to give people a reason why they should work here. Not why they should work, not why they should work here, but why they should work here. When you walk in and you ask that question, I'm amazed how many employees say paycheck. That is not a reason to work here. That's a reason to work, which means I'm going to pick up and go somewhere else very quickly. Right. There are other paychecks. Right. There are other paychecks, right? And so it's got to be about why here? And you answer that through your culture first and foremost. What do you stand for as an organization? And the second thing is there's always going to be some level of self-interest. And the most important thing for me as an employee as a talent is ensuring that I have more doors opening up for me in the future. And the only way I have more doors opening up for me in the future is if, because is if I'm faster, better, stronger than I was the day before you take care of me and I will take care of you. That's gotta be it. And so I, what I would tell you is organizations have backed off of careers because things change so fast. Organizations become networked. You've lost the career ladder, um, the career, hierarchy. So you've lost the career ladder. And so organizations have basically said, I don't know how to handle careers. And employees have basically said, you're not doing anything for me. And that's created frustration. I'm coming out. My next book is called Stray or Grow. And it's all about that topic. Organizations that are able to support employees in helping their employee take control and accountability for their career are the winners of the next stage. That's where engagement's going. And we're at that next stage. I think we've all gotten through that stabilizing spot to say, okay, we're good. Now we're ready to start taking steps forward. And you're right. I think employees are, are ready to do that and to start climbing back up that ladder. And the rungs need to start being put in place because they're going to be looking for them. 
Yep. So Brad, you mentioned your next book coming up, but really quickly, I want to talk about your current book that just came out on March 1st, titled Cultivating Culture, 101 Ways to Foster Engagement in 15 Minutes or Less. Tell us a bit about the book, what you're excited about, and one thing that our listeners can take away if they want to learn more. Sure. First of all, I'm excited about the book because it's it's built for today's work environment. Organizations are dispersed, distributed, flat. And so culture is now not a top-down thing. It's a shared thing. And so the book is all about how do you create a culture in today's work environment? Second thing is it says 15 minutes or less because we're all stuck finding time, right? So we've got to do it fast, fast, short increments. Yeah, we're TikTok nation. It's built for TikTok nation. 15 minutes or less, increments of 15 minutes or less. So uh, to me, anybody can pick up this book. Any leader, supervisor, shoot, a teammate can pick up this book. I I can't be at our team meetings all the time because I travel, et cetera. When I'm not there, someone else in the company, not necessarily a manager, will run our culture building efforts, right? They'll do it. Anybody can pick it up and make this work and make their team a better team, make their company a better company, make their culture a better culture. So I'm excited about it because it's probably one of the, well, I think it's one of the most practical books, but I have been told it is the most practical book on culture ever written. Um, To me, I've called it a playbook. I've heard people call it a Bible. I've heard people call it the cookbook, a recipe book for cultivating a culture. If you want to make your organization better, it's an inexpensive investment that will have huge dividends. So that's why we're excited about it. I know it works because it's based on our work with clients in all types of industries. So it's proven. And that's the other reason why I'm excited about it as well. So um, it's doing well. We love it. And you can learn more about it um, by doing a search. It's all over the place. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, um, Target, Walmart, any bookseller you can find, you can find it. And you can learn more about us and our company at performancepointllc.com. You can find me at bradfetterman.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's easy. Look me up. Connect with me, follow me, start a conversation with me. I'd love it. That's great. Again, thank you for that update, Brad. Thanks for sharing that with our audience. Again, I encourage anybody who's looking for those tips in leadership and really cultivating a positive corporate culture to check that one out. Going through so much change over the last two years, what have you learned that's made you a better leader? You know, I I, I was lucky enough because we do a lot of work in emotional intelligence and part of our work is that we revisit it. And I happened to get kind of an emotional intelligence coach for myself during that period of time. And there are moments during the last two years where I was probably more stressed than others, but paying attention and attune to the stress levels and what was happening and how to digest and make sense of the, of the situation and the emotions you're feeling, it made me realize that I have a stronger ability to handle stress and deal with change than I ever thought was possible. And, and so the impact it's had on uh, my team is awesome. Uh, what, what we see happening in our four walls, the ability to flourish, to be excited, to not be stressed, to focus on opportunity is so different than what we've seen in so many other people's organizations. I, I have consultants that work at different companies and sometimes they come back and say, I am so glad I work here. And, and I think it's largely because we focus on that sense of resilience and emotional intelligence and has reinvigorated us and shown us that we're much stronger um, and capable than we think we are. Yeah, you're, you're showing that employee appreciation and you're cultivating a positive corporate culture. 
Yeah. Look, Brad Fetterman, CEO of Performance Point LLC. Thank you so much for joining the HR Works podcast. This was a great conversation just to learn about corporate culture, employee engagement, and where teams can go moving forward to really build that positive momentum going into 2022 and beyond. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I had a great time and I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the HR Works podcast. Be sure to check out our new episodes every Tuesday. Follow us on all major streaming platforms including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible.